Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you choose is suitable for the audience at home. To help you, there are certificates given to films which tell you broadly what the film is like. This film has been classified 15, which means it's unsuitable for anyone younger than that. It's an offence for a shop to supply a 15 video to anyone below that age, so don't ask them to break the law. 15 films may have a fairly adult theme or contain scenes of sex, violence or drugs, which, while not particularly graphic, are unsuitable for younger teenagers. They may also contain sexual swear words. Video certificates are there to give you the chance to make an informed choice. They allow you to have peace of mind and be entertained. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the film. Welcome to another Movie Mug, a sort of season two premiere, really, if you like. I've had a few weeks off to uh, you know, sort of recoup and uh, sort of uh, have a look at what's, uh, what's going on with this podcast. And I've made a couple of changes to the format, nothing much, just, uh, you know, basically essentially the same. Um, as before, I've got a, in the loft of my house, I've got a ton of old VHS tapes that I dumped there just over five years ago. And they've been slowly wasting away and, you know, not being watched and, you know, got a bit, a bit unloved, really. Um, and many, many of these tapes haven't even been played since before 1998 because I, I turned to DVD in force and uh, sort of shunned the old tape format. So, um, so they've, yeah, like I say, a bit of, bit of unloved for them there. But I've been getting them out of their cardboard coffins as such and seeing if there's any movie gold hiding there, you know, the, the deserves a rewatch and more importantly deserves a, a digital upgrade you know onto dvd or or itunes as is, is my preferred format these days but um it's not all uh taped from tv stuff you know sort of like four or five films to a tape on a on an e240 there's also quite a lot of pre-recorded tapes up there as well things that i've bought from shops and uh, and and quite a few of them are x rentals and they come in those much larger more robust cases that, uh, that i kind of liked so i've chosen to watch two of them today i'm gonna be watching two films a show the, uh, from now on and um as they're pre-recorded tapes they also come with trailers which is kind of interesting and just as much fun as actually watching the film so First up is a film from 1992, and I remember seeing this originally at the cinema, and I would have been 20 at the time, 1992, and I loved this film. I really, really enjoyed it. I knew that I would like it going into it from the from knowing what I knew about the film, watching the trailers and what have you. Um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I bought this on X Rental because I didn't want to wait for it to come out on Self through you know, where it would have you know been a bit cheaper and uh, you know probably slightly less quality because I think the the rental tapes were designed to be battered a bit, you know, watched over and over again, whereas the Self through ones always seem to be a bit more plasticky and a bit more you know easy to break maybe but, uh, but there you go so i would have paid a little bit more than uh, than, ne- than is necessary for this film but um you know it i wanted it straight away i wanted it to watch again um but i probably haven't watched this film in at least 
14, 15 years, I would say, um, since this film has last been watched. So I'm fairly fresh to this. I don't remember a great deal about it. But um, but uh, first up, the trailers. There's a bunch of trailers on the on the uh, beginning of the tape. So in order as of what they play, um, because they're quite interesting. The first one is a film called Traces of Red, which is Jim Belushi and Tony Goldwyn, um, which I've never seen. I've never even heard of it. I don't even remember anything about it. And it, uh, frankly, it doesn't look very good, so I wouldn't bother with that. Then up is uh, Jersey Girl. Now, not the Kevin Smith 2004 version, obviously from 1992, but a Dylan McDermott and Jamie Gertz Jersey Girl, which just seems to be a kind of like a pretty woman, fish out of water kind of story that I've never seen as well. Um, then there's Critters 4, starring Brad Dorif, and I've never seen that, and uh, that looks hilarious. <laughs> um, then there's kind of, um, it's not a trailer, it's more of a teaser, which I uh, kind of a bit weird. It's, it's not even any any footage, it's just a, a, um, a, a cue card that says, you know, coming exclusively to video, and then some really, really weird 80s synth music, and then a uh, basically a poster of Highlander the Gathering, which I think was the third Highlander film after... Um, Highlander 1, Highlander 2, obviously. Highlander, um, what was the, what's the second film called? The Highlander 2, The Quickening, that's it. It was Highlander, Highlander 2, The Quickening, and then there was this one, Highlander, The, Ga- the Gathering, I think. I'm not entirely sure. I might be calling it. I might be wrong. But it's um, it's not even a, a trailer. It's just a poster with some music over it saying it's coming to video exclusively. Then there's a film called Sunset Grill, which I don't remember anything about. It's starring Peter Weller and, uh, and a, a favourite from the movie mug, uh, Stacey Keach, who will be appearing in some other films coming up um, soon. And then uh, a film I have seen, uh, Sniper, with Tom Berenger and Billy Zane, which is uh, it's not bad. They, they kind of they ringed it out a bit there with a, a sequel and a trequel, 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 um, to those to the uh, Sniper film. But um, So a bunch of trailers, and it was really interesting to watch. Now, so I've only seen two of those. Which is uh, Sniper and uh, and Highlander, but um, I'm quite quite keen to see Critters Four just for the sheer damn hell of it. But um, so. 1992 this film was from and now it, it kind of starts off very very strange it starts off basically with a half naked Christian Slater and a and Mila Jovovich Jovovich in a very very skimpy blue top and white panties dancing around to The Future So Bright I Gotta Wear Shades by Tim Buckfree so any guesses to what the film might be well it's 1992's Cuffs um George Cuffs, played by Christian Slater. Uh, this was a year before True Romance, before he's kind of... I mean, I guess he'd kind of broken out a couple of years before because it was a year after Pump Up the Volume and the Heathers was, what, 1988, I think, or 1986. Um, Young Guns 2 was before this. So he'd, he'd been in a few films, but this was kind of like his, you know, uh, his, his action breakout. He'd never really done action before this, and I guess this is classed as an action comedy um, he plays a, a young guy who's been fired from the last job. He's just a high school dropout, bit of a no-hoper, not looking to settle down, wants to just, you know, sort of make get, get through you know, the next day kind of thing. Um, and he's uh, in his own words, as he says, uh, he's got women to do and places to see. But then his girlfriend of just six months, Maya, played by uh, Mia Jovovich, who was only 15 at the time she made this, and she looked a lot older, she drops the bombshell that she's pregnant. Well... Georgie boy, our hero, kind of freaks a little bit, dumps Maya and goes looking for some quick cash from his brother, uh, Brad, who's played by Tron himself, Bruce Boxleitner, to go to Brazil, of all places, and get involved in a kind of, well, like a gold rush that's going on at the moment. That's never really explained, to be fair. Um, but he wants the American dream. He doesn't want to have to work for it. He just wants the American dream. So um, his brother, Brad, who uh, runs his own patrol special business, it's uh, kind of like rent-a-cop in San Francisco. It's, uh, it's something to do with uh, uh, lack of uh, police that they have 
have in the area and then they rented it they they, they made these districts where people could uh, um uh, run their own businesses basically be in rent cops and he runs he runs uh, this district district 33 i'm not entirely sure where that is but um he uh, so he goes to him and it's his birthday it's brad's birthday and he goes asking for some quick cash to be able to do this kind of weird brazil gold rush run uh his brother can't really help him out um and even before he can really help him out he offers him a job but he gets gunned down in an act of revenge for see at the beginning of the film his patrol specials interrupt a robbery in progress because it's a bit of a, a gang area and, uh, and brad kills one of the gang and as an act of revenge the gang leader a guy called uh, kane who's played by leon rippy who uh who was in quite a few things things like stargate and deadwood quite famous from deadwood um he takes revenge on him and guns him down in a, in a church um it's a bit weird because he, he, he Kane then gets caught, but then subsequently let go because George didn't actually see him shoot his brother. Now I need to explain it because it's really really weird, and it's this is the film's lin- the the film is hinged on this as a, as a plot device, but it doesn't make any sense. His brother Brad has just had a meal with George, that says his birthday, and he needs to go and leave to go on patrol. Now he goes to a local church to pray, sort of a, a ritual of his, he says. Uh, George stays outside to call Maya because after dumping her, he's sort of regretting it a little bit. Um, and then when Brad is in the church kneeling down, praying to you know God to whatever, you know, to get him through the night without any, any problems, um, this cane guy, this, uh, this, this thug comes in and shoots him down in cold blood, shoots him like three or four times. Um, George, outside, hears the gunshot, rushes in, sees sees Kane with a smoking gun in his hand, pointing it at the body of his brother on the floor, who's not quite dead yet, by the way, mortally wounded by gunfire. Um, So, you know, and then he kind of holds his hands up and, and kind of, like, walks away. Now, okay, right, fair enough, okay, I see that. So then the police pick him up, and then... You know, well, we've got a guy with a gun in his hand. He's probably a known felon, based on his previous, based on his career cho- choice. He's probably had some previous, but he's let go because George didn't actually see him pull the trigger. Well, that's some tight police work right there. I have to say, you know, I mean, no ballistics or forensics or anything like that. You know, all these would have been standard procedure in the early nineties. But oh, wait a minute! Well, you didn't see this guy actually shoot him. You saw him with a, you know, with a gun standing over his body. You heard a gunshot. There was no one else around. Well, we can't arrest him with that if you didn't actually see him. No, 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 no. If you didn't actually see the bullet come out with his finger in the trigger, we can't do that. Um, I, I guess that there wouldn't be any point to the rest of the film about it, but so, you know, sort of roll on the uh, suspension of disbelief bandwagon again, but uh, it just seems a bit strange that that's the way they should they should get, they should should get come to this sort of, you know, sort of head in this film. But um, anyway, so uh, Brad dies, unfortunately. Um, you know, Bruce Boxleitner is not in it a great deal. Uh, and George, our hero, he now inherits his business uh, and the district it protects. But first, uh, you know, he, he's got to grow up a little if he's going to take on this role. So he goes to the academy to learn to be a cop as well as run the business, which is kind of going to the wall since his brother was killed. Um, and he gets assigned Ted Bukowski, who's played by Tony Goldwyn, um, who had a trailer at the beginning of the film, if I remember right, um, as he's kind of ride-along mentor to learn the rope, show him how to do this, uh, to do this job as such. Um, 
And uh, yeah, the rest of the film kind of plays out as now as, as you know, does our hero. Our hero goes from no hope a kid to running a business to trying to get the respect of his new employees who don't really want him as boss. You know, they kind of like you know shun him and like you know he's just a kid kind of thing. And of course, um, taking his own revenge on the bad guy who killed his brother, who is also part of a larger subplot about the bad guy who wants his own police force and he wants to buy um, George's uh, uh, business and you know so he can basically do whatever he wants and uh, it's linked to a, a major heist. But it's uh, you know blah 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 all that kind of stuff is a bit boring to be fair um it's a it's a strange film because slater is uh it was written for him uh, apparently the 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 guys who who made this film actually wrote this film with him in mind and he's forever breaking the fourth wall on it he talks to the camera or the audience quite a lot i mean it's cute in places but it's also a bit annoying you know i didn't think i really understood that when i watched it sort of like 20 21 years ago but watching it now is kind of like it's a bit annoying for him talking to the camera all the time and you know making quips some of it's funny don't get me wrong there's the odd still joking that works but most of it is just kind of trite and a bit strange the director also you also plays with the language of film a little bit you know like the clip that i played at the beginning of the show that's basically after cuffs nearly crashes into a bus with ted got tony goldman in the car um and ted then launches into this tirade of colorful language at him as you heard but it's all bleeped out uh using kind of like um sort of bon tempi sound effects or something from some record you know kind of thing but it ends with that fuck you which you know it kind of you know was that to give it more impact you know was it done on purpose were they playing the ratings rules game that they're only allowed one fuck to get a certain rating i don't know you know it, it seems a bit weird and there's a really kind of rather silly and unnecessary drugged coffee sequence shortly after as well with tony goldwyn who and it kind of descends into cartoonish behavior and 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 ping pong kind of accompanying you know tex avery kind of style music kind of it's really really strange and it it i didn't notice it when i first watched the film 20 years ago i said but it stands out on a mask like what the hell is this it doesn't really know what it seems to be there also seems to be this kind of weird uh uh anything any excuse to get slater to strip to the waist for some reason yeah and at one point he even says to the camera at one point he stops and says to the camera the door answers and he's got no top on. He says, it seems a bit tacky to answer the door not wearing a shirt. Well, yeah, it does actually. <laughs> so it does. You said it, so why do it? Um, like I said, he talks to the camera a lot and he, 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 you know, he kind of narrates the film a little bit to some degree. And it even ends, get this, it even ends with Slater, who, after the end sequence, the, uh, uh, the obligatory shootout, I don't think it's given too much away. You know where this film's going from the beginning. It ends with him talking about where he currently is with his life and literally says, see ya, to the audience and disappears off and the film ends. Very, very strange. It, 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 it's one of those films where actually I, I watched the credits right away through because I expected him to come back on Ferris Bueller style and say, oh, you're still here. It, it, it just launched itself as a film that had would have that kind of post-credit uh, um, scene, but it didn't, it didn't. Um, Directorial debut of Bruce A. Evans. Um, I don't know if he's trying to differentiate himself from Bruce Evans or at all there, but um, who only ever made one other film, uh, which was only a couple of years ago, 2007's Mr. Brooks, the one with Kevin Costner playing a serial killer. And he wrote both of those films uh, with his, I guess, his writing partner, Ray Reynold Gideon. Uh, and together those two also wrote quite a lot of films films like Starman and Cutthroat Island and you know a number of other uh, films but um, they haven't worked a great deal I have to say um, like I said 1992 is when it came out and it does seem strangely out of place now when I watch it back it's um, it seems very mid 80s you know if I didn't know what year it was I said oh that would have been mid 80s and not knowing how old Christian Slater was or kind of roughly I would have thought that this would have been a mid 80s fight it, it, it tries to evoke quite a lot of that 
Beverly Hills Cop kind of uh, of attitude, which is is is, is also got to tie in the fact that Harold Faltermeyer scored both films, and maybe that's what also a little bit of a throwback because obviously Harold Faltermeyer quite famous for Beverly Hills Cop, quite famous for Fletch, and they were both like early eighties, eighty four and eighty five, I believe. And the soundtrack to this film has got that kind of it, it actually it actually sounds a little bit like rejected tracks from either of those two films, like you know things that didn't quite work, and he changed them, and he thought, oh well, I'll just bring them back out, you know, another time, and bang. They, they they turned up in cuffs um, and it makes it sound very 80s but there's uh you know it, it's it's also got a quite an 80s uh, uh soundtrack in terms of music as well Phil feels just very very 80s there is uh, i remember there being a sequence where uh george cuffs gets tied to a chair uh later on in the film he's in the he's in the laundrette which is pivotal to the film and he gets tied to a chair and, and uh, uh he gets his mouth taped up with gaffer tape and he can't speak and you can't understand what he's saying um you know he's he's, he's doing this and he's got his dog next to him and um and i remember in the cinema having subtitles i i, I really do remember seeing subtitles with this bit so you can understand what he was saying but on the vhs version there's nothing now, I don't know, maybe I'm just going crazy, but you know, I could have sworn that you understood what he was saying because it was subtitled. Again, playing with that kind of fourth wall kind of aspect. Um, it's not a bad film, really. It's not really a bad film. It's just not as good as I remember it, certainly. Certainly uh, when I first saw it was a, as a 20-year-old. Um, and now I'm, just, I'm not too sure what it's trying to be. You know, is, it, is it a straight-laced comedy? Is it an action film? I mean, it's got all these kind of things, but it, because it plays with the mentality of, of, of film, it, it kind of it just kind of uh, sort of branches across a load of different things. And I don't really know where the guys were going with it. And it's in the end, it kind of feels like a bit of a mess really, you know, as if they didn't quite know where that, maybe that's why it kind of disappeared uh, up its backside a little bit, because it kind of didn't really do anything at the box office. And I don't remember any, hearing anybody else talk about coughs, uh, certainly for since the uh, early nineties, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not bad. It's worth watching, I guess, you know, uh, certainly if you're a Slater fan, you know, because he kind of, well, he dominates the film. He's pretty much in every scene. And as I say, it was written for him in mind. So, you know, he's got... He's, he's, he's pretty good in it, to be fair. You know, he's, 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 he's got quite a lot of nice one-liners in it. You know, um, it, it is his film at the end of the day. It's... Um, Mila Jovovich, his, his role is fairly small, pretty much the beginning scene, a little bit later on, uh, and at the end. She doesn't really appear in a lot, but she was, she was you know, one of her first roles. She was only 15. Uh, Bruce Boxlight is only in it for like the first 10 minutes or so. And even Tony Goldwyn, who seems to be like the kind of buddy cop sort of aspect, really just turns up about a quarter of the way through and then disappears until the final reel and that obligatory shootout with the bad guys, which uh, used a lot of slow-mo, which, you know, kind of works you know i guess you know in some circumstances but in this it just doesn't seem to make any sense um watch out as well for a very early small role for ashley judd who appears very very quickly and an uncredited role for lieutenant stephanie holden or alexandra paul for those who never watched baywatch um it's passable um i don't think i'm gonna be hunting this one down on dvd though thank you but um cuffs 1992 Chris- christian slater's cuffs is what the film is your father was a brilliant man brilliant but erratic. And he died. Some of his secrets died with him. You could finish your father's work. You're as brilliant as he was, perhaps even more so. I don't like these things. It's because of the dog, isn't it? How long are you going to hold that against me? It was a tragic mistake, but that's in the past now. You must concentrate on the future, and the future is right here in this very room. Imagine a new era of surgery without incision. 
cutting people open would be primitive, a thing of the past. All the things that would become obsolete overnight. That's what these machines represent. A new age. So, second film today. Another ex-rental tape, another big box. Now, a big beefy box that won't break easily. Um, now, this is the tape that I originally saw it on. The, this was the first time I watched it. I bought this. I remember bought... Well, I was a huge fan of the original. You see, this is a sequel. And, in fact, the original that this is a sequel to was a remake itself. You'll understand that, man. Um, so I bought this blind. Um, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I know that... I still do today. I know I'm pretty much alone on that one. It's got a very, very low... Uh, a low rating, uh, you know, IMDb don't like it much, you know, a lot of a lot of places don't think this is a, a great sequel, but um, I, I really like this film. Um, but I bought it totally blind because I really, really like the original, and uh, like I say, it's it's, um, it's good fun. Um, now, as before, this has got a load of tra- uh, trailers on it, so first of all, again, in, in the order they, they play out on, we've got a, well, it's a teaser really to start with for War of the Roses, the um, Michael Douglas, uh, Danny DeVito, kind of like the unofficial uh, uh, third, uh, you know, Romance in the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, then they did War of the Roses kind of thing, but even though it's not, you know, not, not a direct sequel as such, but um, I quite like War of the Roses, I haven't seen that in a long time either. Then there's a film called, a trailer for a film called Indio, which I have no idea what this is, Never even, don't remember ever seeing this before, but it's got marvellous Marvin Hagler and Brian Dennehy in some kind of weird rainforest kind of thing, I, I don't even know what it's about, Indio, very, very weird. Then there's an advert for Two Moon Junction, the Sherilyn Fenn kind of cheap rip-off of Nine and a Half Weeks, which, coincidentally, was also the debut in a very, very small role for Mia Jovovich, who would have been 13 at the time when she was in this kind of, like, softcore porno. Um, then there's the trailer for The Abyss, which is uh, which is the one which is not direct... It, it is a trailer, but it starts off with that kind of behind-the-scenes kind of thing. Uh, this film took so long to make and uh, cost a fortune, and they had to make a whole lake uh, using a nuclear this, that, the other, and then... It's, it's, it's a good little trailer. For the, I like The Abyss. It's, it's one of my uh, one of my favourite films, Jim Cameron. Then there's a trailer for Talk Radio, and I love this film. Love Talk Radio. I've not seen that in a while as well, but I do have that on DVD. But, um, but that's a quality film. That's when Oliver Stone used to make decent films, Platoon, Talk Radio, you know, back in... In those days then there's a trailer for the fly um cronenberg's remake of the uh, of the original vincent price film um which is very very handy because once that trailer's over then the film starts and as i said it is the sequel to an original film and it is 1989's the fly 2 now before i get into it those rental tapes uh, were obviously very expensive back in the early 90s late 80s early 90s when this one first came out because this tape still has this box still has the price tag on it the recommended retail price which if you see it up there i'll take a picture of it 89 pound 95 was the rrp of this tape back in well it would have been 80 it came out in 89 so it would have been 1990 1991 i mean that's like 150 dollars for my american listeners you know it's ridiculous you know it's uh, and what do you get a dvd for these days seven or eight quid you know after it's been out for a couple of weeks um, anyway, to the Fly Two. So um, I'm going to take it as read that you know what the Fly, the original Fly film is. And if not, then stop this and go and watch the Fly first because it is a superior film. Um, and you really need to have watched the first one to watch the sequel because without it, the sequel doesn't really make a great deal of sense. But um, it kicks off pretty much soon after the first one finishes, or more or less, you know, a couple of months after when uh, Veronica who was played by Gina Davis in the original, uh, but not in the sequel because she didn't want to come back uh, for a role that was literally is over in the first couple of minutes, to give... Um, she's at a place called Bartok Industries, which is somehow linked, I guess, to the first film and the scientific environment. The, you know, I guess that somebody was calling the shots on, uh, on, on bankrolling Brundle's... Um, 
uh, experiments as such. But uh, this place called Bartok Industries, and uh, she is giving birth to the son of Brundlefly, uh, which is kind of comes out as a kind of wriggling, cocoony kind of thing that basically freaks the shit out of her. And she, uh, well, she dies. She goes into cardiac arrest and, and dies. Now you can understand why Gina Davis didn't want to be involved in that. Um, yeah, certainly to begin, certainly at the beginning, anyway. So, uh, but she dies literally moments before this cocoon thing kind of splits open, spilling a load of milk everywhere, and out what comes what looks like a normal, healthy baby boy. Um, credits. Uh, a title sequence, should I say. Um, we then catch up with Martin Brundle, who that's the name they've given him, 11 months old now, and already the size of like a precocious five year old running around causing merry hell. Uh, you know, he's, he's growing at, at an accelerated rate. Not only that, he also has a photographic memory, we're told, and also he never sleeps, which is another, uh, um, you know, sort of strange thing, which is, means that, you know, he's not quiet all he seems to be. You early on you get the idea that he's obviously hugely intelligent. He solves complex mazes without even thinking, and he likes to tinker. And he he, he makes this, you know, I mean, he's he's probably what a year and a half, two years old at this point, you know. And he makes this kind of helmet that um, it changes his voice to a kind of alien style, but with an insect overtone. I mean, the helmet itself is slightly insecty. It's got antenna like lights on the top, and it's got it shoots water from the front like a like a, an insect or a fly would squirt stuff, or you know, sort of it. it it, it comes across that kind of insecty mentality that he's, he's possibly got hidden away there. Um, and he uses it to get out. He's confined basically to his room. He's watched over 24 hours a day for a one-day mirror. Everything's taped. Everything is, uh, you know, uh, is recorded um, because they want to see what happens with this this kid. They know that he's grown at an accelerated rate and he's hugely intelligent, but he wants to get out. He wants to explore and he, he manages to get it. He figures it out and he and escapes into the complex, the Bartok Lab complex. And um, he wanders around a bit at night, you know, when everyone else is kind of sleeping and he's not sleeping. And he comes across a room full of lab animals and uh, befriends one of the dogs in there that's in one of the cages um, and keeps going back to him night after night to uh, sort of feed him from the, the food that he gets given, you know, lamb chops and uh, and chips and stuff, not not great for dogs um, but the uh, the dog is uh, one night he's gone there and his dog is taken away with a little note that's left in it saying gone to uh, Bay 17 or something like that I can't remember, um, but he's basically being used as a test animal and when Martin goes to Bay 17 he finds for the first time he comes across the pods from the first film and they've obviously been relocated from the uh, uh, from Brundle's place into the Bartok Labs because they've probably paid for them in the first place. Um, but they can't get them to work. They they do an experiment. They put his, his his little puppy friend, his dog friend, into one of the pods. He sees his pal go through the pods and comes out the other side a kind of mutated mess. And not quite as bad as the monkey in the first film, but you know because he's still alive. But he certainly is a mutated mess. Um, that kind of freaks him out a little bit, you know, and he, he just doesn't like that. You know, his little puppy friend is uh, 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 turned into this kind of weird mutant. But um, the, you then jump a few years. You jump, Martin's now five. He's celebrating his fifth birthday. And he's now fully grown, and he's fully grown and played by Eric Stoltz. Played very well by Eric Stoltz, I have to say. Um, and he's been in this room for the last five years, watched over all the time. Um, and he's now, he's basically a fully grown adult, in, you know, even though he's only five years old. Now Bartok, Mr. Bartok, he's never given a first name in this film, he's just Bartok. And he's kind of his kind of adopted dad as such, you know, benefactor as well. Um, he's, uh, he, he gives him his own place. He says, no, you've been here long enough, you want your privacy. So they've made him a kind of an apartment in the complex grounds, you know, but um, no more prion eyes, no more mirrors, 
At least that's what they say. Um, his own private place to go and live. But he also wants him to work uh, for him. Uh, and he wants him to work on his dad's pods because they can't get him to work. So he wants them to finish them, as you heard from the clip, that you know he's as brilliant, if not more brilliant, than his father. Now, Martin is initially quite reluctant because of what they did to his canine pal, and he doesn't want anything to do with the pods. But then Bartok gives him a video of that his uh, that his father uh, of his father um, Seth that was made based on the Gina Davis tapes from the first one. You remember in the first one that she was recording him doing stuff, um, and you get to watch one of those tapes, and it kind of explains how it makes him feel better, and you know, so that add that with the fact that Bartok tells him that his dog, you know, he, he's, he's he's sad about the fact that what happened to his his, his dog friend but he didn't suffer you know um he decides to go for it and he sets about working obviously he never sleeps so he works constantly um and whilst he's working at night he eventually meets beth who's played by daphne zuniger who uh you know uh, from the, the sure thing and princess vesper from space ball was probably the most famous role but um she basically does the graveyard shift i think it's like a temping sort of job for, uh, for whatever um but the two of them strike up a relationship and uh you know they he, he's never really been in touch with uh sort of uh, sort of women before you know he's always been they've always been the people who looked after him so uh they strike up a relationship and all seems to be going well you know he gets the pods working eventually but sort of keeps it to himself what's happening and doesn't want anybody else to know that he's got the pods working but um and starts to fall in love a little bit with beth and and beth with him but those brundlefly genes they, they they're not going to stay dormant forever they're in there and they're waiting to come out now he actually thinks that he just has a, a disease an accelerated growth disease which means he's gonna you know he grows a lot faster but also means he's probably going to die a lot quicker that's what he thinks he's got that's the reason why he's where he is um but he he finds out that his old man, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the tapes that he watched, he didn't watch any tapes of him being a fly. But he finds this tape after he goes mental a little bit and uh, and, and breaks out of where he is. He goes to uh, the the place where they've got all these tapes and zooms forward and finds a tape that actually explains uh, of Seth of Seth Brundle from the first film of him, you know, almost in in, in fly mode with uh, explained that a fly got into the pod that one time um and he thinks that oh, well, he knows that he's then going to go the same way that eventually he's going to metamorphosize into something add to the fact that he also finds out that his little doggy friend from the from five years ago uh, or two and a half years ago wasn't put out of his misery and he's actually still alive and being kept alive in a kind of very very weird i don't know why they have to put him in this um weird um kind of like chamber as such you know why they could just put him in a cage don't know um and that his private apartment is not actually private at all and he's been taped he's, he, he gets taped having sex with his girlfriend beth so he explain you know he goes a bit nuts and he uh, you know breaks out of the lab and and off he goes whilst at the same time he's starting to begin to change he, he has an injection he's getting these placebo injections uh, into his arm and when they don't go in and the, the the needle breaks off in his arm he's left with a wound and that wound starts to uh, starts to metamorphosize um, and go a bit strange and from that I kind of starts a little bit I guess starts of a chain reaction which means that he starts to uh, fly up as such fluff tool fly up um so he breaks out and uh, you know he starts going to run a little bit but um, he, he gets captured, even though he's kind of halfway transformed, um, and he gets taken back to the Bartok Labs, and he eventually fully transforms into the fly and gets out of his cocoon, um, fully flied up, you know, for a huge big beast. And the beast in this film gets a lot more screen time than the first film beast did. You know, when when Brundlefly gets turned into the fly, he literally is only in it for that little bit at the end. He gets a little bit more screen time and goes on a bit of a rampage in the Bartok Labs, basically killing all of those who lied to him and all those who kept him from 
understanding what he really was, um, with the ultimate intention of getting back to the pods and trying out the cure that his old man was going to attempt in the first film. And again, if you've not seen the first film, you understand what that is if you watch the first film in terms of fusing more than one person together. So um, uh, there's plenty of nice score in this film. There's there's the there's the there's plenty of splattery melting faces. There's a, there's a really really awesome squashed head in a lift effect. Now a few episodes ago I talked about a film called Intruder or The Night Crew, where there was a uh, um, a rubbish press where someone's face got squashed into it. This is very very similar and a lot more squelchy. And it's uh, yeah it's very very bloodthirsty at the, in the last sort of like 15 minutes and uh, does a good job as it should because Chris Wallace the director. This was his debut film, and he actually directed two more projects after this. One was a Tales from the Crypt episode, and the other one was a film called The Vagrant. Never heard of it in 1992. Hasn't really done much in the last 20 years, this guy. But um, but he was primarily a makeup and effects artist, and he actually did the special effects and makeup for the original film. And I think he actually did a really good job directing this film, even though he didn't really get much chance to direct anything else. This was uh, smartly directed, tightly directed. There was no, you know, it was all it was all well played and it was all uh, all very well done. And I uh, and I do really enjoy this film. Stoltz is also very very good in this film. It was the the, the character was written with him in mind apparently, um, even though he wasn't the original first choice. Which is I don't know how you understand that again, going off the the uh, um, uh, the spiel that you know he was it was written with him in mind. And yet Vincent D'Onofrio was the first choice. Eh? Well, how does that work? Maybe it was rewritten with him in mind, but it doesn't really quite state that. But but I think he's very very good in this film. He obviously he's always been quite good under makeup. If you've seen The Mask, um, and uh, he's a good actor, Stoltz. I, I really like um, watching Eric Stoltz for um, his work. Daphne Zuniga, who I've always liked. You know, this was uh, this was after the Shaw thing in Spaceball. She's okay. She kind of phones it in a bit. Um, you know, she kind of she's not in it a great deal. To be fair, you know what she is in it. She's a bit a bit whiny in places, but uh, but it's okay. The best part about the film probably. Though, is the nice little cameo from John Getz reprising the, his role from the first film. Uh, again, it's a five-minute role about sort of two-thirds of the way through after they've after he's escaped and they're on the run and he's trying to find out a bit more about what's happening. Um, goes to find um, John Getz's character, which is, what is it, Staphus or Staphius or something like that. Um, and uh, obviously he's uh, minus a hand and a foot, which, again, if you don't really know what I mean by that, you have to watch the first film to understand it. But, uh, you know, they, and he makes a few jokes about it, and he's a bit of a drunk now. And it's a nice little nice little scene. It's, he, he doesn't particularly act in it very well, but um, it's nicely played out, and I, I, I do like that. The, um, the other thing about this film is the music. It's very, very reminiscent of... Um, there's a lot of huge orchestral stings and sweeping cellos and violins. A little bit like the first film, but even more so. Kettle drums, all that kind of stuff. And I swear, if this film gets played and I... Uh, and I'm not looking directly at the screen and I see it behind me I'd think someone's watching Hellraiser because it sounds just like the Hellraiser music but uh, but it's good it, it, it does fit it's, uh, it's, it's suitably suitably sweeping and, uh, and, and epic um, I like The Fly 2 I think it's a great film um, it's not a patch and it's original which is but it's different enough to wait, make it a worthy watch and for that reason you know I've, I've, I've had this tape for a long long time now and it's definitely time to get a digital upgrade so that's already been, uh, been ordered I found it online for a couple of quid there is a uh, quite a few box sets about the fly team get me get everything because obviously there was the original fly films i think there was the fly there was a sequel this has nothing to do with the sequel from the original sequel and then there was a third one called the fly returns something like that 
But um, this was this is the direct sequel to the 1986. I'm going to say 86 uh, um, David Cronenberg film, and uh, it's 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 a good worthy watch. It's got some nice gore in it, well played, nicely directed. Um, it's worth worth an hour and a half of your time. Um, so 1992's The Cuffs. Nah, it's okay. It's not great. The Fly Two from 1989. Yep, top film. I really really enjoy that. And that is this week's movie mug. Like